Hello world, welcome to the High Paying Bastards. We are your hosts, Ian and Ari. Here, we will discuss anything related to video game culture, so please, take a seat and join us. Ian, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Ari. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, bud. We took a small break. There's so much work to do. Now I'm ready to come back and uh, do our show together for all of our audiences. Are all um, three listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We appreciate it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that somebody accidentally clicked on <laughs> download and then nobody even noticed it. The fuck is but, this? Yeah. Hey, hey, it still helps our metric. We'll take it. You know, we'll take whatever metric we get. You know, and moving up the world. It's a W in my book, man. Yeah. That accidental click from Alaska, we appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> we see you out there. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Ian, let's go ahead and get started with our new year with news that has come out regarding the video game industry itself. Where do you want to start? We could dive into the billions of leaks that's happened within the past two weeks or something, because I feel like that's pretty big. Yeah, I think the biggest leak that we probably noticed was the Insomniac one. And I think that's the more significant one. Not even considering that that leak resulted in Wolverine being kind of revealed a little bit prematurely, but it also leaked that included a lot of employee data. Yeah, like real personal data too on it. Um, I read somewhere that, and this is probably wrong, but it was something like 15 terabytes or something that was hijacked. No, the so I'm looking at the article from Polygon.com. It mentions the amount of data that was released was 1.67 terabyte. So initially, the hack was conducted by a group called Rishida. They tried to ransom for $2 million or 50 Bitcoin by an auction. So whoever wanted to pay for it could gain those information, but nobody bid the bait. So they leaked about 1.67 terabyte worth of data online. And that's where it included Wolverine game data, level designs, casting, and alpha state state testing. It also included a lot of employee data, which includes like NDAs, the Slack communications. It's like a chat that they use internally to talk to one another. Some internal HR documents, which include complaints and issues that is raised between employees. And also included scanned employee passports. Yeah, that, that one's pretty big in my book, if you ask me, the employee passports and stuff like it's kind of crazy that that they got access to that kind of shit this group like Rishida that was responsible for this particular hack it's apparently being monitored by U.S. government for quite a while it's pretty new apparently in the overall kind of hacking world or something they have kind of ramped up all ransomware hacking especially in gaming industry as well as we kind of remember what happened with Rockstar and also with Ubisoft too yeah. Also, um, with that Wolverine, I guess pre pre alpha or whatever that was essentially leaked, um, a lot of people were getting DMCA's from uh, their ISPs. Really? Like, so, like, if you watch those videos regarding those game data and stuff like that, like people would come after them or something? No, they actual gameplay. Like, it wasn't just like a video. Like, they actually released gameplay of Wolverine. That's kind of interesting. I'm glad that nobody participated in that ransomware because I don't want that kind of behavior to be encouraged and more and more people getting targeted. That's kind of unfortunate what happened in Insomniac. Hopefully they managed to recover and not too much was lost and we don't 
the employee don't see their random passport pop up in some most wanted list or something like that, hopefully. Yeah, they just sold their identities. We can laugh about it, but holy crap, if if I imagine that happening to me, I would I don't know what I would do. I would have to change my name again. But like compared to the other hacks, like Ubisoft apparently also was hacked and I'm looking at the uh, Ubisoft one. That one was reported by VX Underground, uh, who know a lot about security industry. So VX Underground, they actually had a direct communication with the people who were hacking the Ubisoft data. And apparently these people, they were able to access the same kind of like, you know, Microsoft Teams, like messages, some of the, uh, especially they were targeting the software that company personals use to talk to one another, like SharePoint, Confluence, and et cetera. So that's how they're usually getting in. But Ubisoft was able to block within the 48 hours, even though the hackers revealed a couple of the screenshots that they were able to share, share online from their hack. Yeah, and they, they got about 900 gigabytes of data, it looks like. Really? They actually got it? I thought they had managed... They were targeting about like 900 gigabytes worth of data, I think. Yeah, my, my mistake. I read that wrong. It looks like they were trying to get 900 gigabytes of data, but they lost access. They were especially trying to target the Rainbow Six Siege's user data. That's what they were going after, apparently. But yeah, they were able to stop it. To be fair, and it's very ironic too, Like it's kind of weird that Ubisoft was being hacked considering every single one of their game as a hacking minigame in their like game, like, you know, Watch Dogs. Even Avatar has it. Assassin's Creed has it. Where like, they make hacking look like, you know, you're just uh, going from one portion through a maze to another portion. Like, if that's how they think hacking is, then of course they're getting hacked all the time, you know? Like, it's so easy. I don't need to know CS. I just need to learn how to do some puzzles. Like, it's so easy. And they're yeah. able to block it. Some uh, some kids' puzzles there for you. <laughs> yeah. It made me immediately think about that uh, Assassin's Creed Black Flag, the uh, non-pirate section where, like, you're a Ubisoft mm-hmm. employee and then you have to go around... <laughs> you have to go around hacking... Like it, you know, computers to get more data. So I'm kind of imagining these people doing the same thing. So I will say this real quick too about like because so they they were targeting the user data for Rainbow Six Siege, right? Right there, that should be another reason why they should get rid of fucking signing up for video games and shit, right? Like everything that you every game that you get now, even like Payday Three did it and shit. You know, you got to make a uh, an account, you got to sign into it and shit. Get rid of all that shit, you know what I mean? Hell yeah, that is that is the great fucking point. This shit doesn't happen when I have an offline game mode and I'm playing on my own end and not have to log into some Uplay or EA Play or Origin or anything like that. That shit doesn't happen to me at the time. Now I have to worry about you know, logging into a game, even if it's a single-player game, and now suddenly they have my information. And apparently, if you know a username and a real name, you can make enough connection to swap that person as well, which is what happened to, uh, what is his name? The guy who voiced Michael on it. Netbook. Yeah, he was live streaming, but somebody managed to connect his username with his real name and you can go up into some county property data. Now, I'm not teaching anybody how to do this. (laughs) Yeah, but you can usually find where people live based upon the uh, property tax data and then swap their location. Of course, do not do that. Uh, I'm not, I accidentally tried to tell people how they do it, but I was looking up how they did it. So yeah, if my username and my password is being used just to play a single player game and I suddenly my data is part of what is being hacked by some rogue like hacker in the dark web or something like that, that's kind of concerning. And I didn't even think about that. 
Yeah. I mean, because the thing is, is why the fuck am I making a you what? Like, why am I making an account for Rainbow Six Siege for Payday 3 and stuff when it's just going off of my PlayStation account anyway, or your Steam account or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, why am I making this extra username just for them to target that that data for hacks and shit? You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't it doesn't make sense to continue to sit here and do that kind of dumb shit and having to make eight billion different user IDs. Exactly. It's not helping anything. It's not helping anything. <laughs> it's not, and it's not putting us in danger too. That's the worst part, in my opinion. Like we're we're not even like you know control of our information. If somebody decides to hack a centralized kind of database for a gaming company, they already have our login information, emails, and stuff like that. Now we're going to be targeted for phishing scams or shit like that because they're getting targeted as well. Yeah. But with that being said, you know, I mean. To kind of cap off all the hacking stories that had come up in the past two weeks, the GTA 5 uh, source code has been leaked apparently for about $2,000. And according to uh, Bleeping Computer, and this Bleeping Computer, as I was reading through that website, it's a pretty good uh, place to kind of get your gaming news and like computer-related information. I, I was pretty impressed with their detailed article. So it's kind of, you know, if somebody's listening to it, definitely shout out to them and, you know, their research but they went through the code and they thought that the code itself is authentic but whether it is a source code being hacked from the gta like rockstar itself that they were not able to determine that one but apparently it is a source code for gta 5 and it was being sold for like two thousand dollars and i said especially this one was targeted by the lapses group and one of the guys that were key in this uh hack was the uh i don't want to name him he's like a 17 year old or something but Apparently, this kid was uh, sentenced for indefinite hospital stay, and he still managed to hack into Rockstar using some Amazon Fire Stick and his mobile phone. Well, the indefinite hospital stay was the sentence he, he got after the hack. Yes. Yeah. And he seems like a kind of an unwell individual, to be really honest. He will go back into hacking again. Uh, like, they're very confident that this is what exactly he will do the moment he gets out. Well, so he said that. He's like, that's where he fucked up, right? Is when he was getting sentenced, he straight up said, I'm going back to crime. The guy is not mentally well, man. The guy is just not mentally well. And hopefully he finds the best way to kind of recover on his end. But like, man, somebody just get this kid a job in NSA or something and just let him hack away to the enemies of the state rather than uh, some rock star company. And just yeah. to be clear, I'm not laughing at him. I'm laughing at this statement because it's just so fucking absurd, dude. And like the time and place, like that's exactly what you don't do. You're just saying that because you don't want him to hack you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, uh, but you know, with all this hack, I want to say like if somebody's listening, you need to pay attention to your cybersecurity training that your company tries to make you do all the time. Don't yeah. right? don't slack off on those, man. Like most of these hacks happen because it an employee is the gateway through it. Apparently, the most common way these hacks are happening is because it's phishing scams from email, multi-factor authentication fatigue, or they do like a social engineering where they have those BuzzFeed-related question. You know, your porn name is your street and your pet name, and then they use that information to get inside your account. So be careful, everyone. You know you. You you don't want to slack off on your cybersecurity training. I used to do that all the time, but still, you know, we're 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 messing with a lot of important data here. Yeah, I mean, and like as as much of a joke as that shit is, because I mean, it kind of is. But employees are the easiest and quickest way into a network, straight up. Yeah, 
you know, behind every like you know technical problem, there's always a human being that is uh, behind all of it. Well, that's all for the hacking news on my end. Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of it, and there's there's a lot to sift through. So, I mean, it, we could sit here and talk about this shit for a long time, but I mean, it's probably best that we just kind of move on to something else. Yeah, uh, this this one thing I want to talk about. Yeah, so apparently. For PlayStation or Sony to approve a PC port, they only need to do it through an email approval if the cost is less than $30 million. Now, this is the news from WCCF Tech. And I know it doesn't sound like a much of a news, but for me, who only plays PC games and have has not been, you know, playing a lot of PlayStation exclusives, and for some reason was kind of angry because Uncharted was not on, you know, PC and stuff like that for a long time. I thought it kind of felt like a slap in the face considering how easy it is to just give me a pc port of a really good playstation game yeah i mean that's that is really interesting that if it costs less than 30 million only an email approval is needed that's i mean that's that's interesting to say the least exactly and usually the pc port aren't even too bad i know that they had a little bit of problem with the uh, horizon zero dawn when it came to the pc port uh but the ratchet and clank rift apart Apparently, that came up without any kind of issue. And that one only needed an email approval, too. Now, this information comes from the hack for Insomniac as well. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to know. And I hope, because the next story we want to talk about, it is kind of related to this. But I hope PlayStation is a lot more uh, willing to kind of let a lot more PC port versions of their games kind of come out, too. I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't. It's more money for them. Um, I can definitely see them doing where it stays on PlayStation for, you know, a year or something like that before they end up doing a port. I could totally see that happening. Um, but to just completely deny going over to PC, that'd be a little foolish on their part because it's a, it's a huge audience. I can tell you why I think that they don't do it. And it's really to one of the news that we should probably be talking about it. It's the one, like, Sony right now, this is according to the IGN article I'm reading, Sony really is concerned about Microsoft Xbox strategy following the Activision Blizzard buyout. So in this particular article, they were detailing how Sony is looking at how Microsoft is going around and buying big name games like you know your Bethesda Studios, your Activision Blizzard. Initially, what Sony thought was that you know if Microsoft is using a Game Pass, it's an unprofitable way of doing business. Because the licensing cost is much higher than how much revenue you're bringing in from your subscription. That's what their initial assumption was. But as they're watching studios like Activision, Blizzard, and Bethesda being bought out, now they're finally seeing that what Microsoft is doing. Apparently, with these purchases, Microsoft is trying to find a way to create a first console, PC, and mobile gameplay experience all combined together. Like three of the bigger markets of like you know, how people play games. So with this particular kind of purchase with Blizzard, with Battle.net, and with like, you know, a lot of the other kind of purchases that Microsoft is doing, they're trying to put together kind of a gaming environment where they're not just focusing on console games like Sony is. They're also focusing on PC and also mobile and then combining them all in Game Pass, which will become profitable if all of these licenses and all these games in different, you know, uh, ports are being used. So this is what Sony is finding out that Microsoft is doing, and they're kind of getting concerned because Sony doesn't really have anything other than the their console system to rely on when it comes to providing gaming services. 
I mean, yes, they they all they really have out there right now is, of course, like the PS5. But I would argue to say that their their uh, single party studio games, you know, like PlayStation Studio games or whatever, or Sony games or whatever, um, like Spider Man, those are better quality than what Microsoft has been putting out. I'll say this. But if you're looking at the overall revenue, like what does PlayStation have that has a really good live service game? Well, I mean, does what's Microsoft's good live service game? Anything that Activision Blizzard makes. COD, it has the World of Warcraft. The uh, It also has anything from the Battle.net. Uh, anything that has related to Overwatch later on too. Like, but that's because they bought Blizzard and Activision, right? Sony needs to just buy a big studio like that, correct? And they did. They bought Bungie. They bought Bungie with Destiny. It's like an online game you play on PlayStation is also Call of Duty. And because of the regulatory requirement, Microsoft is allowing Call of Duty to exist till 2027. Now that is going to run out in 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 just three years. After that, they're not going to have any Call of Duty on PlayStation at all, which alone is like one of the biggest multiplayer game that, you know, every console or like every PC port wants to have on their end. So sooner or later, like they're going to run out of like a more popular live service game that makes a lot of money. Those kind of are going to go away. What do they have for mobile gameplay? You know, mobile gameplay makes more money than console does. Like what do they have on that end? They they don't have anything on it right now for sure. But I mean, also, are those are those things that we want? That's the things that we have to ask ourselves as gamers. Right. It's like, yeah, sure. Businesses, they want that shit because it makes them money. But we, a lot of us, people that play video games and stuff, we see mobile games as shit, shit tier games, right? A lot of it is getting your, your couple of whales that are, that will sink thousands of dollars into a shitty mobile game. Correct. That is correct. But that still kind of shows a demand from the consumer and gamer side. If that thing is making a lot of money, it only makes because people are playing it. Right. Like that's the thing about it. The the other thing though too, like okay, so Diablo Immortal, right? It was the mobile version of Diablo. Who's playing that now? I'm sure somebody is <laughs> out there who's probably I, I do not know that answer. But from when it comes to mobile gameplay, it's not just Diablo. People are playing Candy Crush. Still, like Candy Crush is yeah. still one of the biggest games. That's the mobile game that Microsoft definitely wants to have under its pocket and it already does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and you know, that's where you know, Microsoft made good moves and they bought that shit. But, you know, and again, as far as like a business standpoint goes, yeah, sure, that's great because it's making money and shit. But as a gamer, that's that's shit. That's literal shit quality video games. I, I don't want to play that shit. I want Spider-Man. I want God of War. Those are the things I want, right? And I know a lot of other people want that kind of substance as well. Something you can really sink your teeth into. Right, Call of Duty. I can't sink my teeth into Call of Duty. Yeah, but like, Ice is not the only teeth in the market. You know, that's the thing. Like, the reason that they make these movies because they know there's enough gamers out there who will pay for this. Hey, I agree with you, man. Mobile gameplay, and I'm I don't really play the mobile gameplay, but apparently, every human being in the world apparently does play it, and they make enough money to kind of like you know make like about couple, multiple billions of dollar a year on that end. Like, I'm looking at the Game Pass number itself, right? From the regulatory uh, conversation, Game Pass apparently makes about $400 million a month. Now, a single-player game like Starfield, if you want to put it on a Game Pass, you have to pay them about 
200, maybe $300 million to make it exclusive in the Game Pass, that wipes away just one month worth of revenue for them. While for the rest of the year, they're still making $400 million per month. And the number is basically this, like your uh, average, like, you know, Game Pass costs about $9.99 per month. And you have about 25 to 30 million people who already have Game Pass right now. And that comes up to about $400 million a month. That's what the number is coming from. And we'll see. I mean, there's not really something like, you know, that I'm more worried about. It's just something that Sony should be worried about. I mean, yeah, I feel like it's something we should be worried about, though, honestly. But the Game Pass numbers that you saw, right, does that, is that PC and Xbox included? Because with Xbox, in order to play online, you need Game Pass with it. It is not with, like, the reason I chose the PC number 999 is because that's the lower number. If you want to choose the Xbox number, that's about, uh, I think, like, what, uh, a little bit higher, like maybe $10 or so. But if you have both PC and Xbox, it makes about $16 a month per subscription. It's even much, the number I'm giving you, it's definitely on the lower end of the number. Yeah. It's like, that's the thing. It's like the math about this entire thing is kind of weird. Like, you know, uh, when I showed you that uh, appendix section with all the yeses and nos, that was yeah. me doing a math on what it would cost for me to have a Game Pass. And right now, depending on the games I played this year, it's not worth it, but it's only not worth it by $1 per month. So basically, I spent about $427 on all of the games I played this month, which is about $35 per month. Now, if I had Game Pass, only two of those games would have been on it. And that game's worth is about $97.98, which is about $8.25 per month. Game Pass would have cost me $9.99 per month. So this Game Pass right now for me is not worth it by just $1 a month. If I played just one more game on the Game Pass, it would have been worth it. Like, that's like, personally, a lot of people are going to come around to the Game Pass, in my opinion, but you know, I don't want to, I don't want you to shoe up my mouth or something like that on that end. But People are starting to realize that the, how Microsoft is kind of cornering multiple port, especially three biggest port, PC, console, and mobile. And they're going to use the Game Pass to corner a lot of people, including they're going to create their own application store to compete with the Apple, Apple's App Store and Google's Google Play, which is also kind of throwing back on that news where Epic Game was suing those two companies for application store. And if that lawsuit goes through, they'll be able to put that application store, Microsoft will be able to put that application store in almost every phone out there. That's going to be the big section where they, they could make even a lot more money on that. And, and this is where like Sony's word is like they're looking at these pillars being set up for a future infrastructure, and they're still trying to dig concrete out of the earth on their end. Yeah, I mean, Sony is definitely trailing, like, like you said. I mean, Sony is definitely trailing in that aspect and stuff. But I just worry that it's going to dilute the, you know, it's going to dilute what we get, basically, whether it's like the service or, you know, the quality of games or whatever. It's just I have a feeling that it's going to dilute it and it's just not going to be on par with what it should be. I mean, you know, I almost feel like the the golden age of gaming is, is past, you know what I mean? But wait, that was like 1980s in Atari yeah. and like you're already way past that. I mean, Ian, you know, one day we'll look back and when you're using your Game Pass, you know. <laughs> Not happen. <laughs> uh, we'll look back at this. You know, it's a good thing we're recording a podcast. I'm going to come back and then 
when we are both retiring at our respective nursing home, I'm going to bring it to your face and then say, you remember when you said this, Ian? You remember this? Well, how wrong you were. Or you can do the same vice versa to me. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm just saying like, I just hope that the quality in games stays consistent, right? Like, we're like, again, you know, you, you talk about Spider-Man, God of War, these Spider-Man 2. Those are some really heavy hitting games right there. You know, even uh, Last of Us, Uncharted, you know, all those games, they were, they're really good quality games you know yeah. and you you kind of look at the stuff that microsoft's been pumping out it's just it doesn't it doesn't have it doesn't hit the same levels well you and i don't play too much multiplayer games the one popular ones right i mean i don't play wow anymore and i don't play like cod anymore but we'll see where it goes but it's definitely not a news where it's affecting directly the game i'm playing right now but it will one day as you're saying that yeah. might dilute the quality of the game we play Although this Game Pass has kind of like, you know, system and since we started doing the podcast, it has forced me to not just play the big name games, but to go and play smaller games and give that a chance. If on a Game Pass, like, you know, there's a small game that is there that would not have kind of gotten any kind of notice. And right now there's like a lull between two big games coming out, then I'd probably go check out a smaller game because I've already paid $9.99 a month. I'm going to, I've already owned these games. In a sense, like I can already license this game, so might as well, might as well, you know, play it. I know what you're gonna say. Go ahead. <laughs> you, you really own them, Ari. You own them. I believe I, you're renting them. I mean, hey, uh, I will say, I will say that for smaller games and stuff like that, it's it's good for them to get on Game Pass because it does give them exposure. There's nothing wrong with that. The bigger part of this article when I was uh, writing my summary is that I spent $500 on game this year and I didn't feel like I played that many games. There's like a couple of nine of these. I wonder what that math is going to be for me this year if we decide to continue doing the podcast. Like, But I'm definitely going to focus on playing smaller and the bigger games at the same time too. I mean, I, I, won't, I won't joke with you, Ari. I mean, I blow tons of money on video games and I piss away. Uh, a lot of money on really bad video games at that so it is it's not a good i don't know it's it's hard to tell when things will be good you know it's almost like um that subreddit patient gamers you know where they wait like 10 years before they get to something overall to summarize this article specifically i know we went quite off tangent on it sony is right to be concerned about this whole thing i think microsoft is laying down foundation for a very integrative gameplay experience, game purchase experience. And if Sony doesn't get its like, you know, head into it, I know you and I both kind of want them not to because and focus on more quality than the quantity itself. But there is a thing happening here where like if one company starts cornering an area, it could like drive out the other companies from the business itself. So we need to be more cognizant about it and see where Microsoft goes. But to be fair to Microsoft and its history, it has done many big kind of move which has kind of blown up on his face as well so we'll see where it goes on that end yeah i mean time will tell right time will tell speaking of uh microsoft games though i want to i want to go back to this one news that came out uh, pretty recently on twisted voxel where chris avalon who is a former obsidian entertainment developer mentioned that he had approached bethesda with a proposal that he would like the company Obsidian Entertainment can make a standalone game for Elder Scrolls while it's between 
Elder Scroll V Skyrim and there's Elder Scroll Six. Now, the Bethesda decided to not go with it. And I think that was a very big mistake because Obsidian has a good track record on something that Bethesda is not, is kind of losing its track on, which is a really like gripping story. Yeah, Bethesda's definitely, their writing is definitely lacking on where Obsidian blows them away, in, in my opinion, for sure on that. Uh, they Obsidian does a great job with their writing and their story in general. New Vegas, Outer Worlds, top-notch games, right? And when Bethesda works with Obsidian, they create magic, essentially, right? Absolutely. I think this is a kind of a, something that Bethesda should focus one more time on we give them one more chance because one of the news that i also want to talk about later on was that the overall rating for starfield has dropped to mostly negative uh, which is not a lot for like you know company that makes billions of dollars or anything that they might care about but it's kind of telling that people are starting to come around that after the initial hype of your game is over it looks like their game is kind of an empty game to play mts and like you know there's not much story wise that we're really kind of you know expanding upon or kind of exploring it's just a kind of like a game that has some plot points that just we have to go through as if it's a chore on a sunday morning so they should probably think about taking this approach whereby a company that they have worked with like obsidian entertainment can handle a little bit of franchise management for them now as a batista they might not want their big franchise like fallout or you know elder scroll to be handled by another company because if you remember, when New Vegas came out, the game did have a lot of hiccup during the launch itself. It had some issues and bugs, which were later on addressed, but it did kind of like put Bethesda in a negative light. But to be fair, again, Bethesda already has been put under a negative light when they do it on their own as well. So they should think about like you know, maintaining their franchise by working with another company like Obsidian. Yeah, I mean, they've worked hand in hand before plenty of times, right? And sure, Bethesda wants to give Obsidian some shit on a release of New Vegas, but let's not forget the release of Fallout 3 as well. It was not, it was not crystal clear perfect, right? I mean, Bethesda really can't be mad at Obsidian for the release of New Vegas. Now, they worked on it and it got, it turned into a classic, right? Like people idolize New Vegas almost more than Fallout 3, I think. Um, with just the writing and everything else with the game. Like, uh, think about it. An Obsidian made Elder Scrolls game, even if it wasn't like as expansive as Skyrim or something like that, probably would have been fucking awesome, right? Yeah, according to the same article, apparently the story that they were trying to go through is that this will be kind of like an alternate world where the Dragonborn was not able to save the world from Alduin's like, you know, attack. And this is kind of like the Lizard of Zelda uh, Ocarina of Time kind of happening where like the hero did not save the world. So it's going to have to kind of like, you know, there's a different timeline starting. Now, we asked about this, they might have thought, oh, this is way too convoluted. And we already have Elder Scrolls online. I don't know who's playing it, but <laughs> apparently people are playing the Elder Scrolls online elsewhere or stuff like that. So they didn't want Obsidian to have a little bit of hand in their franchise. Maybe they were being too protective. But it kind of like, you know, in my opinion, sometimes some IPs should be shared and other companies should be allowed to kind of have a little bit of hand in like, you know, giving their version of that IP as well. Like, and I want to see what Max Payne will be like under uh, Telltale or something like that. Just an example, but not a serious one. 
Like, you know, that kind of mattered. Like, I'd love to see one game that is made by one company, but uh, now it's being interpreted by a different kind of company as well. You know, that would have been pretty awesome to see. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. Bethesda, in my opinion, couldn't have gone wrong with letting Obsidian handle an, an Elder Scrolls game, right? It would have been it would have been nice too because we would have gotten probably a little bit of something in between five and six. Where now six, I mean, we still know nothing about it other than a tiny screen, right? So we would have gotten a taste of something, which would have been nice. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I'm not really too optimistic about what the Elder Scrolls Six is going to look like based upon the Starfield and everything else. Like, I didn't hate the Starfield game. I did play it. I finished it. But it didn't have me, like, unlike a lot of people, apparently, I did not have the uh, inclination to kind of restart the new game plus and play it again. Like, unlike, you know, the game we'll talk about later on, which, like, the Sea of Stars will talk about it. But that game, I could play eight to nine hours straight because how much I enjoyed it compared to, like, Starfield, like, you know, I'm playing it for two hours and I'm looking at my watch. Okay, I think I put my hours in. I'm going to go to bed now and this is putting it down. But, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit in detail. Uh, the CS starts a little bit later on, too. Starfield just wasn't gripping. It didn't have that, like, kind of grab you and, and pull you into it, really. Um, and I think that's something that Obsidian actually does kind of well, um, especially with uh, New Vegas and Outer Worlds. They both kind of really draw you in. Outer Worlds, in my opinion... It wasn't, I know, I know it's kind of like a cult classic, but I didn't care for it as much. It felt a little slower, but I do love New Vegas. I think I like New Vegas more than I like three. With kind of like with that being said, I think one last news I want to go over is the fact that, hey, if you're on Steam and if you right click on your game and go to manage, you can hide your game now. So if you've been playing some dating sims and some erotic kind of games, now you know how to hide them. <laughs> It's a little little anti game, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. I would never judge Ian. I don't judge people how to get their rocks off. You're allowed to play whatever game you want as long as you know it's not really weird. But now, if it is, you can hide it. I too shame. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's something that they sh- they should have implemented a while ago because I know people right? have complained about that. But it's good that they finally did it. Yeah, no more having a fake account for your. For your game, uh, like in your uh, sexy daddy dating sim or whatever you want to play. Sexy daddy That was more of a, yeah, that was less of a news, more of a PSA. And with that being said, I think we've concluded our news section so we can move on to the next one. Yeah, I think uh, I think that wraps it up nicely. Yeah, and let's talk about a game that came out over the year. Uh, probably one of my favorite games, now that I think about it, it's called The Sea of Stars. Have you played this game? No, I uh, I missed that one. Uh, I think I saw it in the store, but it kind of didn't hit my radar at all. And after talking with you and seeing kind of what you wrote about it, I probably missed out on this one, unfortunately. Yeah, the first time I heard about this game was at the Game Awards itself. Like, I didn't hear a lot of people talking about it when it came out. Uh, I'm pretty sure people did, but I was probably just not paying attention. But... When I saw it on the Game Awards and it was kind of doing better than Dredge, like in the one indie game that I played over the year, it suddenly was like, okay, I want to play it. I want to check it out. It looks pretty fun. And I decided to get it and then decided to play it and wanted to cover it. So, I mean, right there is the good thing we watched TGA then. You know what I mean? You got something good out of it and that's all you can ask for, right? Yeah, you can send the money to Jeff Kiel. <laughs> <for this. laughs> 
Well, get into it, man. Tell me about it because I know nothing about it. I saw some screenshots. It looks like a Legend of Mana type game. Well, you haven't missed it. You can always buy it. Overall, Sea of Stars, in my opinion, is a very good game. It's a really enjoyable game. It understands, you know, how people remember rather than how the old JRPG game itself is, like in your old uh, Zelda and stuff like the top-down RPG. It understands that that kind of game is not as good as we remember it, <laughs> but it uses what we think was good about it and puts in it. For example, right, the movement in this game is a lot faster than those old RPG games from top down used to be. It, it, it's like you're almost running through the field really fast. So they've kind of like, you know, added a little bit of like, you know, understanding that this kind of gameplay has a nostalgia value. But at the same time, they managed to make a game that is much more meets our expectation in our head of what the old JRPG game used to be when we played it when we were young. So, like, when we look back fondly, we can remember Sea of Stars versus Legend of Banner or whatever. Exactly. Like, I, I have, I still have my Game Boy Advance with me, and I have the red version with me. When I plug it in, you know, thinking about Nostalgia, I remember the old Pokemon. I start playing, it's like, oh my god, how many times do I have to press the B just to go through this goddamn thing? They understand that very well. So they kind of speed up where they need to speed up and they slow down where they need to slow down. So, like, it's like a good homage to all those games that came out but it's also at the same time it improves what we might have found frustrating when playing those games so it's kind of a good amalgamation of people understanding what they're making as a game itself and the visually it looks like you know really good uh, i don't want to use the really good again and again as a like an essay a review but it looks absolutely beautiful the moment you kind of get into the game uh, you know, like, you know, your nostalgia starts hitting you immediately. You remember all those old kind of games you've played on your Game Boy Advance, Game Boy Color or whatever. And you're suddenly thinking, oh, yeah, this is exactly what I remember. And uh, you're not bogged down by the limitation of the technology that was back then. And it really makes you enjoy the game overall. It's a pretty long game as well. It's about 30 hours long for me to finish the main storyline. And it also has a lot of good game mechanics that I can go over. Well... Um, tell me about the battle system, though. I'm interested to see. Is it like a turn-based or is it a kind of free-flowing uh, battle tech game? Sure. So the game is a turn-based combat, but do you, I don't know if you remember this. Like, uh, if you were playing Game Boy Advance Pokemon, somebody like used to say, if you press B button at the right time, you'll be able to get the critical hit kind of thing. Yeah, I think the, yeah. um, I think the Super Mario RPG uh, kind of does that too. Yeah. So when we were playing Pokemon back in my old country, that used to be kind of a legend that if you press the B button at the right time, you'll be able to get the critical hit. Yeah, yeah. Of course, that is a myth, by the way. That is not true. No, 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 no. Don't lie to me, okay? I know it works, okay? I know that when I throw that Pokeball, if I push A and B at the same time, as soon as the Pokeball hits the Pokemon, I know there is a guaranteed chance to catch it, okay? Don't lie to me. No. What? What are you talking about? Like, that thing was a myth. That is a total myth, dude. Those kind of like, you know, button that allows you to have a reaction time to kind of increase your critical hit. But in this game, they remember that enough to kind of make sure they add that portion in their combat. So it is a turn-based combat, but when you attack, you have to time your attack at the moment and it will increase the chances of a critical attack on that end. And also in the defense as well. So you're not just pressing, you know, A button after A button after A button all the time in this game. You're trying to kind of time it trying to make you be more engagement 
it's in trying to engage yourself from reaction perspective, like how good your attack and defense depends upon how good your reaction to the visual prompts are. So yes, it is a turn-based combat, but it also has kind of a, uh, like a, uh, you have to pay attention kind of yeah. aspect towards it. You can't just fall asleep and, and play the game. You got to actually like pay attention. Yeah, because like this kind of game, you can just like, you know, press the, like, and if you're playing it on a keyboard, I'm pressing the D button to move right all the time. And then pressing the space button to get through everything as fast as I can. No, no. You want to like, you know, pay attention to your gameplay itself. And considering that the combat itself, you usually are paired with four uh, specific players, not players, but like four characters you can use uh, turn by turn on your attack. You gain these allies as you play through the stories you gain. And these allies have different kind of play style than yourself. So as a character, you can either play as Valer or play as Zell. The Valer is the lady character, which has the more moon-based kind of power, which is very strong against the spirits and stuff like that. While Zell is more of a fire, sun-based kind of uh, character, or what they call in there, the solstice warrior. And they have more of a kind of a quick kind of blade kind of attack and etc. And then you get other characters like Sarai, which is more of a sneaky assassin kind of character. You get like a magician kind of character. You get a little bit more of a physical brawler kind of character. So you can kind of pair them up. And as you're playing this game, you can also combine like two characters to create a combo attacks. As you play through the game, as you play through the fight, you earn combo points and be able to use combo between like, you know, the muscular guy versus the moon spirit or the assassin versus the fire uh, character. You can combine their attack and deal more damage. Kind of like ultimate attacks. Exactly. And there is another called the ultimate attack itself. So like this one is their main, main attack. The ultimate attack, there is a, uh, that is like separate from combo itself. You learn moves as you go through the uh, game. That I thought was like pretty interesting because I don't know if I like that one or not. Like you don't really learn that many new moves throughout the game. You learn just enough uh, and you can kind of finish up the game with just some basic attacks. But uh, the amount of moves you learn or the weapons, different kinds of weapons you get, there's not a big variety to it. Mm-hmm. You're either getting a spear or you're getting a staff or a sword or daggers or a, <laughs> or a garbage lid, basically, that works like a shield and stuff like that. So it doesn't have that many variety when it comes to the items and etc. Is it like the um, old school JRPGs where like you go to the shop and you buy your weapons or are they loot drops? Both. So sometimes you might be good enough with the gameplay that you've been using the same weapon. So you could end up at a shop and then you can buy the more uh, weapon that are closer to your level. But most of the best weapons you get is by uh, fighting and then kind of exploring the world. You run into chest and from the chest you can kind of get the weapon. Yeah, get the drops. Is your better weapons and stuff. Uh, That's good. I find it kind of dull when like your best weapons are from shopkeepers. You know what I mean? Exactly. They're... You can definitely kind of like, you know, try to upgrade your weapon as in like, try to find the uh, better uh, weapon using the shops and etc. if you really want to catch up to it and you've forgotten to update your weapons. Uh, but it's not as strong as the ones you find out there in the world. Now, however, there's another aspect of the game play that kind of helps you play this game in a much more different kind of experience is by using this thing called the relics. So the relics are things that you'll find around the game. You can even buy them as well. They allow you to change some aspects of the gameplay and make it easier or more difficult to play. 
So for example, there might be a relic that you can turn on that will allow you to deal more damage than you normally have. Or there will be a relic that will turn on, then what it will do is that it will make it harder for you to finish off a villain or it will make it make your combat more dependent upon those reaction times than it does in a normal gameplay. So these relics kind of allow you to kind of mitigate and kind of make the gameplay a little bit more closer to whatever that suits or whatever you might find more enjoyable to play, whether it's harder or easier. Okay, so kind of like modifiers then is what, what they are then. Basically, yeah. So instead of having just easy, hard, or normal kind of mode, there's that aspect to it. But it also, while you're playing the game, it kind of allows you to modify the overall gameplay experience using these relics. So is it modified like how, um, you you know, like um, Hades, where like you choose your rod, you can choose those fire uh, modifiers or whatever to like, you got to do certain stages within a set time or enemies do double damage hell. Or is it like per battle? It's the first one. It's more like the first one. Okay. So for example, one of the modifiers, what it does is that it will overall lower the cost of uh, trading with the merchants. It will have a modifier where overall your damage that you deal to your enemies is plus 35 or something like that. Okay. I can kind of decide kind of relic you want. And there are also some relics that will make your game play a lot more difficult as well. So it can kind of go the other way. Yeah. So it's it's more of an overall modifier. Exactly, yeah. And it also, uh, it, it basically is allowing you to kind of uh, make sure your gameplay is more adherent to how you want to play it, whether you want the easier or harder. Because in this game, like, and it's not a hard game to play, to be really honest, like, uh, I've never had any trouble with the bosses too much or anything like that. It's not very difficult. Uh, one of the more thing that I have a little bit of complaint about is that it doesn't reveal the HP information for every bosses or even for like most enemies. You have to kind of wear a certain ring or like, you know, armor to kind of make sure you can see the HP of non-boss characters. So when I'm playing against a boss, it's kind of weird that I don't know if my next attack is going to do the final damage or not, which kind of makes the game a little bit thrilling, but also kind of frustrating as well. It's obnoxious if you ask me. I mean... I know exactly what you're saying, and I hate those JRPGs where in order to figure out what like an enemy is kind of weak to or their their HP pool is, I have to do like a, an analyze move or some shit like that to figure it out first. You know, I'd rather it just like give me the information beforehand or something because it's kind of just like a wasted turn. You know, I mean, I, from what you're saying, like equipping an item's not bad, but I mean could you you could probably use a better item in that slot rather than trying to just see an enemy's hp or some shit like that right exactly and also it has to be a character that you're using to fight so like if you decide to use a different character who's not wearing that ring it's not gonna work like you need to have the character on the battlefield for it in the party yeah 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 it's not a big deal in my opinion but it was kind of like when i'm fighting especially there are some bosses called the dwellers which are like, you know, your big stage bosses. And I don't really know how long that fight is going to be because I cannot really see the HP or if I'm doing a damage or not. Like some bosses have certain weaknesses. Some can resist certain kind of attacks. So it's kind of hard to know whether I have my attack works or not other than from the prompt that I get after hitting. And usually I don't really remember most of the time. So I'm just using whatever attack I have on my hand. But it still allows you to be creative with how you uh, like you choose your party members in order to fight a certain battle. 
Yeah. So how are the uh, the visuals then, you know, speaking on like, you know, visual cues and stuff like that? I mean, how does like the magic look? How does how do the attacks look? Are they animated well enough? Yeah. So overall, yeah, the animation of like, you know, the motion animation, the motion graphics are really good. It's basically uh, nothing really, in my opinion, that special, but it has a good like, you know, kind of a, gives you a good feedback whether your attack has been successful or not. Like, for example, one of the attacks you can do as um, Valer, the female character you can choose to play as, what happens is that it's called the Moonerang. So it's like basically moon combined with a boomerang. And you can kind of like attack it. And after the Moonerang attacks the enemy, it returns back to you and you have to have good reaction to hit it again. The Moonerang it up and throw back, back and forth. And it speeds up as it goes. And... You can use the visual cue to kind of like, you know, oh, I'm kind of timing it really, really well and make that attack continue for a long time. So it's very reactive and you'll be able to tell really well, like, you know, when you have a successful defense as well. Like there's a relic in there where every time you have a successful defense or successful critical attack or a successful critical defense, a rainbow with a star comes out of you. <laughs> so it's like a ping kind of coming out. So, like, you can turn that relic on Well, <laughs> you hear that sound and makes you want to, like, do it again and again. So, yeah, the overall visuals of how the magic and everything looks, it's not like, you know, you're not looking at the 3D render or anything like that, but from how what it looks like, it's 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 quite, like, you know, very nostalgic. It, it has a very non-complicated kind of look. It's very simple to kind of follow, and it never is disrupting your gameplay because of how it looks. It doesn't distract you a lot. It's very straightforward on that end. Yeah, it kind of works with the game and just kind of the, the natural flow of the game itself is, is good. Exactly. And in this kind of things, like, you know, when you remember the old, like, Pokemon game where, like, you can use like, a certain attack, it's just a basic visual. It doesn't really have to show, like, the visuals hitting the character directly or anything like that. Yeah. You know, like, you throw a flamethrower, the flame could be anywhere, but, like, it's still a successful attack. It's kind of like that. And in this one, one thing that doesn't happen is, like, you don't miss any attack, of course. Uh, there's no, like, you know, missing kind of attack or speed kind of related stuff. So you will hit every single attack, but whether the attack is successful or not or resisted or not, it depends upon how you, uh, what kind of attack you're using and stuff like that. That's one thing that was interesting. It's like none of the attack missed. That was like, huh, maybe they should have added that to be really honest. Yeah, like an accuracy type thing. Yeah. One more additional thing about this game, you can also do a lot of cooking. Uh, you can learn recipes and collect items to make the food which has different kind of uh, HP or mana related, uh, like, you know, your uh, buff and et cetera. So uh, not really buff, but like recovery, basically. You yeah. can use food to recover your health or your mana. Mana is what you need for to do the uh, magical attack compared to your physical attack. Yeah. So basically your food's kind of just uh, healing and, and your, your HP and your MP and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So that's the overall gameplay mechanics on the game, like of the game itself. It's very like you'll as you're going kind of through the game, you'll see what I'm talking about. And like this game is what you have in mind when you remember the old RPG, top-down RPG game are like. And 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 certainly like it has a lot of uh, meta jokes about it. Like I made a character called Captain Cliche, <laughs> like uh, but it's but it's kind of like spelled like uh like it's an Irish name or something, Captain Cliche. But from like in a story perspective, it will take you through quite a lot of twists and turns. That's what I really want to talk about. It's like this game has a pretty decent story on how it uh, takes the turn on the hero's journey and stuff like that. It's 
like that's what I'll talk a little bit more in detail about. But yeah, it'll take you through a lot of twists and turns, uh, some really emotional moments. Uh, characters are pretty fun to kind of stick around and hang around and play. Overall, the game, like, you know, you won't feel tired when you're playing through it. In my opinion, like, I was playing this game on Christmas Day. I started at around 8 a.m. in the morning and I kept on playing until, like, 9 p.m. And my family was complaining about, like, you know, hey, you should probably come down and celebrate Christmas with us. Plus, like, I'm not Christian, so I wouldn't really have any gift or anything like that. So, you know, I was like, what do you mean celebrate? You only have, like, you know, you only have much to celebrate about. But yeah, so like, you know, I could like, unlike, you know, some games uh, that I would not name directly right now, but it doesn't feel like a chore to kind of play. It's like, oh, I'm kind of having a good time, a good flow with it and continue playing without getting too tired about it. It's a pretty good, it's definitely a good game to kind of go back and uh, cap off your year with like, you know, because I don't think you'll remember this game next year, like this, like in 2024, when other things come out. So as we're kind of waiting for like new games to come out, this is definitely one you want to go and at least visit once. I will forget this game as soon as the podcast happens. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Monster Hunter World is calling me, man. I got to go hunt some Rathalos and some other shit. You know, I got to make some armor and stuff. Okay, so I need, I need to have an intervention. We need to <laughs> me, your cat and your turtle sitting around and saying, Ian, time to move on. This uh, game is way too old. No lives forever in my heart so i mean is that is that it with the story though as far as like what you wanted to kind of divulge or i mean the other thing i guess i want to ask is like so you said you get like a couple different characters to choose from and stuff and you can swap out your characters your party or whatever do you have to i guess like progress a storyline with these side characters like how detrimental is it to like kind of swap characters between your party and stuff it's not detrimental at all. It's like you're kind of traveling with a group of people, but only four of them are visible kind of thing. Okay. So you can swap characters really, really easy without even sacrificing turns. So like, again, I don't want to compare with Pokemon again and again, but you remember in Pokemon, when you want to switch a Pokemon, you have to kind of sacrifice a turn for it. Yep. In this one, like you can swap characters easily. So moment like your combo point is there and you remember that you want to use a certain kind of move with a different character, you can swap out the character immediately and then you can basically do that combo and swap out by the time your turn comes back again. So like you don't have to sacrifice any kind of turn. You can swap and immediately use that to attack as well. So like the characters are not too detrimental when it comes to swapping. So they're just kind of rolling with you at all times. Yeah, you don't have to go to some Pokemon Center and try to trade them out and then get a new one. No, no. Uh, they're rolling with you the whole time. And uh, yeah, the swapping... In the mid-battle itself, you can swap, so like, and it's pretty easy on that end. <laughs> so we do meet these like, you know, supporting characters through the story as the story progresses. And you know, one good thing about it is that they don't have like a, a very strong side quest kind of thing. Like you do kind of take their part of the plot and etc., but their story is integrated into the main story, so you don't have to stray away from your main storyline to do their side quest. So there isn't a lot of side quests to do at all. Like there are a few of them that you can do, uh, but they don't really, they're not even available immediately. You have to kind of like, you know, go up online and then look up the side quest and see, oh, this is how you start the side quest and stuff like that. It comes as a natural conversation between other NPCs as well. So like you have to kind of find these side quests and there's like maybe six or seven of them. It's not a lot of them. You don't really need to do uh, too much, too much of it. I got you. I mean, that's literally exactly what I was going to ask was like, you know, 
you have to like swap out. It's nice that you don't have to swap these characters out in your party and stuff like that to get these specific quests and stuff. So yeah. Yeah, everything is integrated into the main quest itself, so you don't have to take like a, a detour into another character's story while your main quest is happening on the side. So no, uh, this, the supporting characters are quite interesting. They're quite uh, different from like, you know, different sets of attacks and different sets of defense and stuff like that. So uh, it's that feels like you're adding some new arsenal to your fighting strategy whenever you get a new character to follow you around. I gotcha. Um so how would you, I guess, I don't want to like give you a scale to rate it on, like a one to 10 scale. Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a scale based upon one of the, my favorite critics <laughs> for movies says. It's like he rates the movie from full price to uh, some old bullshit. The thing is uh, full price, in my opinion, it's worth going out, getting it, having a good time with it. Easy to follow kind of story. The story itself, in my opinion, is quite impressive. It follows a like to the T step-by-step story tropes from Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. It does like, you know, oh, you have your call to action, your uh, kind of a doubts about it, your meeting with the goddess, your uh, apotheosis, your return journey, all of those things that happens in hero's journey, like you'll see it in Star Wars or whatever, that kind of adventure is there. So it's a very well-constructed mythical kind of adventure you're going into. And it allows you to really take a deep dive into the story. And you really enjoy the world around that story as well. And there are some really good emotional high points from this game that I've not felt from a lot of games that I've played before. Like you feel like there's some section in the story and I don't want to spoil it directly. But when that happens, it it really you, you get hit like a fucking brick when that emotional sections happen. And it's. Definitely, like, that's what I really enjoy about this game. It's like, the characters are very simple. They're quite one-dimensional, like, your anime characters. Especially the kids, like, Shonen Jump kind of animes. But they're very effective on how they're used in the story. The only complaint I have from story perspective is that the ending is a little bit rushed. The first ending, by the way, not the alternative, like, you know, the true ending, as people are calling it. The first ending is, in my opinion, really, really rushed. Like, the moment you beat your main villain, they start wrapping up the story so fast. Like, it feels like, oh, wait, you're leaving some stuff out. Their characters, they just change into something else. Like, they emotionally become a different kind of character the moment the main villain is over. And it makes you feel like they rushed through the ending, even though they were doing such a detailed hero's journey prior to that section. I gotcha. So, I mean, kind of a classic tale that's been told numerous times, but doesn't necessarily yeah. get old by any means. No, nah, I mean, like, you know, a lot of musics have the same kind of chords, but they still feel different when you listen to it. It's the same thing. You've seen these story tropes many times, but they do it very effectively here. The ending is a little bit rushed. You can also do a true ending where you have to go and finish up the side quest. And there's this one thing that I have to do where I have to go collect all the rainbow conches. And the dread of it doing it is like, you know, in Assassin's Creed 2, going around and finding all those feathers. It's basically that. So I don't want to do it. I'm so close to finishing it, but I don't want to do it. I'm happy with the ending I got. I know what the alternative ending is and everything. It includes time traveling as well. So I'm like, you know what? Keep that as it is. Be that way. I'm satisfied with what I got. But yeah, it's a little bit imbalanced from the ending perspective in my opinion. But overall, it's a good, fun story. Yeah, I mean, as long as you're satisfied. Hell yeah, after 30 hours worth of game, I am quite satisfied playing this game. Like, it was 
a lot of fun. And I hope to kind of check out more games like these. Like, so I might go and play the Octopath Traveler as well. That one looks even better from visually than Sea of Stars. Yeah, I played Octopath Traveler, uh, first one, yeah. like one, I played a bit of it. Um, I kind of just fell off it, like I do with every fucking game that I play, unless it's Monster Hunter. But, um, I mean, it, it is very, it's a very good game. Uh, the one thing I will say with that one is it is kind of obnoxious. Uh, you do have to swap out your party members and stuff like that with Octopath. Yeah, do you really need like an eight different character or something? Nope, you fucking don't. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, like in a Sea of Stars, definitely for me, it's a full price game. Like, you know, I should really not, I, I should really not use their rating system because their top rating system is better than sex. <laughs> it's worth uh, the price, though, to say the least. Yeah. They're, I think the rating system is like better than sex, full price, matinee, rental. And then at the end, you have some old bullshit. And uh, I don't want to use it because, uh, like, you know, this so creative. It's one of my favorite podcasts to listen to on their end. But, yeah, so, like, yeah, this is definitely worth the price. Uh, it's already kind of probably you'll find it in a discount pretty soon. It, so whenever it comes up and you're having a lull between the games you want to play, definitely don't forget to check out Sea of Stars. And don't you dare even <laughs> tell me that you'll forget this game after we're done with the podcast. I'll, <laughs> I'll talk to you. I'm going to talk to you about it every single day. Otherwise, I'll I'm just kidding, though. I'll wishlist it that way. It's always on my mind as at, at some point. So I still get a discount on the uh, discount notification on Days Gone. I gotta take that off mine. Shit, I forgot it fell on there. Right. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. If you guys find like a good price on it, definitely worth checking out. CS Stars. I know it's already won the award at the Game Awards this year and everything else, but it's for indie game, and most people they're gonna forget it. But definitely keep it in mind to kind of go back and revisit this game one day in the future oh nice man i mean glad to hear about it you know i i will have to check it out at some point when i do have a lull but i mean man this 2024 year lineup is looking fucking mighty beefy to me so yeah you know ian i think this game would be a pretty good one to play with your steam deck i think this one would be something that would really fit with your steam deck really well i'll have to keep that in mind then if, yeah. if you're saying it's good for the steam deck then i'll have to keep that in mind because i'm always looking for stuff uh to play yeah yeah just to summarize yeah great game definitely worth recommending you know definitely worth playing it's very enjoyable and i hope we see more of these kind of games in the future sounds good to me ari well shit man i'm looking at the time man i think we're uh i think we're about good yeah no we're not good no. actually because <laughs> i need to talk to you about something specific and I need to talk to you about something that has been eating my mind. It's making me insane. It has occupied such a space on my head that it has made me distant from my family and has made me like you know so socially behind everybody. I need to talk to you about Avatar Frontiers of Pandora one last time. All right. Avatar Frontiers of Pandora. What the hell has this been bugging you so bad about? Tell me. I have to hear. All right. So, I was playing Avatar, The Frontiers of Pandora. You got to say the whole thing. It's like a tribe called. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, playing this game, right? And I arrived to the midpoint of this game. Now, as a midpoint, I don't mean like the middle of the gameplay itself, but a section where a massive revelation is supposed to come out. Now, originally, the gameplay as it goes by, the revelation is this. Like, you go into this abandoned human RDA facility the enemy's headquarters that has been abandoned for a while. You go in, 
And then you start learning a little bit. You see some weird stuff around there and you're trying to figure out your past and everything else on that end. And you're going through it. You fight a couple of like, you know, beasts and stuff like that. You go in and then you get revelation that RDA people killed all of your tribe, the Serantu tribe that you would belong to. And they kidnapped you as a children to indoctrinate you with the human ways, right? Okay. That's the original story. And spoiler again, like, you know, if anybody's playing. But that's the original story. But when that happens, the crux, the final thing you get as an information revelation to confirm that is that you find a file that says your sister is disruptive. Like, you would think, what the fuck does that have to do with everything else? Like, how do you come to that conclusion with it? And then you take that information and then you confront Alma, the caretaker, the human inside a Navi avatar. You take that information to her and then you have to confront the past or make peace with it, right? Now, this is where my main problem is. As I was going through the... I'll, I'll, I'll let you first ask the question. Go ahead. What the fuck does... What, okay, you're saying that you find a note that says your sister's disruptive? Yep. What the fuck does yep. that even mean? Exactly. This is what I, this is what is kind of like a big revelation is like something I already know. I know my sister is just a bit. She got killed for it. She got murdered. So, (laughs) and I also know that Alma, my mentor, was working with RDA, that I already know that. And I know that RDA Mercer, the main antagonist, has been lying to me about what happened to my clan. Now, the big revelation is that the RDA is the one who killed. Our clan. Okay, that is a new information. Yeah, but you wipe them all out, basically. Yeah. But from the beginning of the game, I know something like this has happened. Like, yeah. we know for a fact, like, this is exactly what is supposed to be happening. But so, yeah, so the revelation itself is not as big as I thought it was going to be. Like, it's not a big revelation. It's something we kind of figure out from the story itself. Yeah. But here's what happened is that when I was going through that abandoned RDA facility, what you notice is that a lot of things in that facility are bunch of vats. That's where like you make your avatar and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. That's what is more preoccupying into it. So when I was going to the game before I arrived to that main crux of that mission, I thought this is what they were trying to build. I thought in the end of this story, what we're going to learn is that we as a character are not Navi. We're actually avatar. Like we're human maybe children, human children whose consciousness have been taken and put inside an avatar body and then being used to create a way to, like a sleeper cell for other Navis in the Pandora. Now, this is why I believe that that is probably the storyline they intended to take in the beginning. Because at the end of it, now you have the proper Far Cry comparison. Now you have to decide which side of the story you want to be part of. The human side or the Navi side, which yeah. is what every Far Cry game has, right? You don't yeah, side yeah. with the villains or yeah, side with the heroes. Yeah, good good, exactly. You have good guys versus the bad guys kind of thing. And in the game, you have so many things that are structured to make my theory of the gameplay true. For example, uh, the title of the story is Avatar. And you only see one Avatar in the entire gameplay. And Originally, the franchise main story has always been whether to choose to be a human or to be an avatar. That's like the main choices yeah. that happens in the movies as well. And another thing is also that when you play through the game, you can do things for the Navi that increases 
their affinity, their likeness for you. Like they call it the clan contribution. You can increase the clan contribution when you do like, you know, their side missions, when you do a lot of like, you know, they're putting some food in their basket and stuff like you earn favors from them, a likability from them. And on the human side, there is a gameplay mechanic where like if you destroy the humans, machines and stuff like that, you kind of uh, better the pop pollution metric. So like the pollution metric becomes better, but yeah. it's basically measuring how much you have interacted with the human beings and destroyed their stuff. Now, my understanding would happen is that if that was the case, if we were turn out to be like, you know, the story turns out that we are actually human children whose consciousness have been put inside the Navi, you know, to make us into a sleeper cell. Basically, if we destroy too much human uh, infrastructure, then humans will not work with us. But if we do not do enough clan contribution, then the Navi will not work with us. Yeah, and you're just kind of left in the middle. Exactly. And that choice is basically reflected on the three side characters you meet. Like, you meet Renella, another Navi, which is basically someone who is fighting for the Pandora, working with the humans, but fighting for Pandora and making it better for Pandora. You meet Telan, which is more subservient to the human beings. So that's the choice you'd get. Like, that's the character you are more close to if you decide to help out the human beings more. Or you meet this character named Nor, which is too angry. He's way too angry with the Navi and too angry with the humans as well. So he becomes a rogue, an outsider. And this guy disappears from the story as well. Where the fuck did he go? This is the guy that disappears. So the choices that he can take in this gameplay at the end of it, if they had gone through with the us being like a, instead of Navi being a human being inside a like a avatar body, those are the three choices you could have taken. Help out the Navi, help out the humans, or go rogue. Yeah. So what? So tell me what your gripe is. Is your gripe that their big reveal or whatever just it was lackluster? There was nothing there. Is that what? That's not even the biggest gripe. It's just that, in my opinion, I cannot judge a story for what it is not. Right? It's not fair to judge a story for things that it didn't do. Yeah. The overall story is okay. It's not going to be memorable. But if they had gone through the us turning out to be like, you know, human consciousness in an avatar body, yeah. then I think that would have made this story so much more memorable. And people would remember this game as something more than just a Far Cry skin. Yeah, like you said, like it actually played to the name Avatar. Exactly. It would have made the story a lot more interesting. It makes a lot more sense too, because the main antagonist wants like, you know, somebody to be able to infiltrate into the Navi world, but he killed an entire tribe to do so. Now, his plan would have worked because he decided to put human children's consciousness into a specific kind of Navi as well, a Seran II Navi, which were known to be diplomats and going around and connecting all the other Navi tribes. That would have made their ambassador program much more successful. And when you're playing through the game, the weird thing is that all the people, all the actual Navis who see us and they recognize that we're from Seran too, it feels like they have not seen Seran too in like a hundred years. Yeah. Like they, it almost, I thought like Seran too, they didn't just disappear like 16 years ago. They disappeared like hundreds of years ago or yeah. something like that. And an ancient tribe or something. Exactly. So originally I thought what RDA had done is like they gathered the DNA of an extinct navi tribe they cloned their body into the avatars they kidnapped human children now that would have been the more interesting thing they kidnapped human children like orphans or whatever took their consciousness put inside the navi children and then tried to train them in human ways 
and then infiltrate the Navi encampment. That would have been, in my opinion, a much, much better story than what we got. Yeah, I mean, that that definitely sounds like there's more to it than just being someone from a lost tribe, right? Exactly. It feels like such a missed opportunity, but it's not a criticism to the game itself because, again, I don't want to judge a story by what it isn't. I'd rather do that for what it is. And what it is, is like they decide to take a certain direction. Maybe they did it because, you know, it would be too much on a budget if they tried to go through that multiple storyline. But I wish they had stuck to that, you know, uh, I wish they had stuck with the multiple choice kind of ending that a Far Cry has between the choosing between the good guy or the bad guy. Yeah. And that would have been so much more interesting. Because in the trailer, if you look at it, you'll see a section where like a Navi dressed in human clothes is training along with other human beings and using the human weapons. Yeah. yeah. Like these kind of choices are all around the game. And whether you want to choose the human way of doing things or you want to choose the Navi way of doing things. Do you want to pluck the fruit in a harsh manner or do you want to do it in a more gentle Navi manner? Do you want to kill an animal with your gun and then ruin everything or do you want to kill it with the uh, bow and arrow and then make sure that you do it a proper peaceful way? Do you want to wear a Navi uniform like Navi armor or do you want to wear a human armor? There's like those divisive choices happening throughout the gameplay. So it's kind of weird that maybe they were trying to scrub that. Maybe that this is what they had original mind when it comes to what kind of story they want to tell. But suddenly they decided to change course in the middle. But there are still like few ghosts of that story here and there in the entire game. And that's what's been bugging me. It's like you wanted to tell a different story, but you ended up going the simpler route instead. Yeah. I feel like that happens a lot, especially with like the uh, Far Cry games and stuff like that is you can kind of see subtly like a direction that they were intentionally taking the game, but then maybe budget cuts, maybe the corporate big wigs was different that they got too involved in it. Right. And then they, yeah. they had to make sacrifices. Right. So that kind of leaves you with less substance um, and kind of like how you're feeling. You, you feel a little flat on, it. you know, there's, there's, there could have been something great there, but it just didn't hit the mark. For whatever exactly, you're absolutely right. that is that is perfectly summarizing how I'm feeling. It's like ah, there is something there that I would have thought would be a great story to kind of go through. Maybe in my opinion, if they decide to do remaster of this game, they should think about it. They should like <laughs> give me It's not like they're listening to me or anything right now. Yet, but I'm like, there's such a potential of a different kind of story because that's what is the griping part about me for Avatar franchise deal. <laughs> Considering I'm the only one who actually really enjoys this franchise. Yeah. The the reason why I'm laughing is just because, you know, you talk about a remaster already and it's just the game just came out. I mean, what are we doing? The Last of Us Part Two remastered, re redone edition. Call it Avatar Frontiers of Pandora, Ari's Correction. Something like that. Ari's Correction, Remaster, Redo <laughs> Reboot. Yeah, I know, I know. But like, it's like, I don't know. It's just been on my mind. And now that I, we have recorded, I think I can put it to bed and... You can move past. Uh, you can move I past. can move past it. Yeah, yeah, I can recover from this. Yeah, I'm gl- well, you know, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad yeah, it's here for you to, to get out your gripes of this Avatar game. Because you know what? This year, my man, we got a lot of good stuff to look forward to. Avatar, Hallelujah. in the past, my man. Monster Hunter World, okay? I'm just going to start there for you. <laughs> 
that thing started in 2016, man. <laughs> you, no, you get over it. You get over it. It's my bad. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to call your cat and then call, need to call your turtle and an intervention. I'll say this. I'll definitely try out Monster Hunter Wilds when it comes out. I'm going to give that a shot. I think it will be fine. Yeah, I think it will be too. I mean, it's Capcom. They do great stuff. So they, they do great work. So I think we are done, Ian. I think well, we have used this podcast for it was created, you know, ranting off on weird stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what it's here for. Yep. All right, Ian. Thanks a lot, man. Stay yeah. around. For sure. Oh, and by the way, if anybody wants to reach out to us, uh, you can email us at highpingbastards at gmail.com. Uh, we'll start creating, you know, YouTube channels and stuff like that pretty soon in the future. So watch out for that. And hey, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you. 